Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Let's talk about games for a second. Some teachers are using experience points to track performance instead of letter grades. Playing Tetris has been shown to reduce symptoms of PTSD. If you want to get engaged with movements in the gaming landscape, check out Plus 7 Intelligence, the podcast about how games impact people. You can subscribe to Plus 7 Intelligence on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Season 2, available now. Welcome to the Podglomerate. I used to think it was innate. When I was a young asshole, I thought it was innate and I thought I had a gift. And as I've gotten older, I realized that that's nonsense. I love to read. I grew up sitting at the table reading the New York Times sports section. So I'd be reading all these great writers. When I was in college, I would go through the archives of our college paper, University of Delaware. And anyone who had made it big, I would read their clips from back when they were at Delaware. I really paid attention to writing. I don't think it's like an athlete where, you know, Mike Trout was born with some physical gifts that other people don't have. I just think I, I was brought up with a really love of reading and a love of writing. Welcome to Writers in All Right. My name is Jeff. And I am Kyle. And to be honest, I've just been, you know, nose down in the books for the last two weeks, so I don't actually have any, like, fun anecdotes to say. I have been nose down in the books on vacation. I'm actually still finishing up the Codex Alera series from Jim Butcher. I was just going to ask you what you were reading on vacation, but now I guess I don't need to ask. It is so good. Yeah, I'm reading, I just picked up Six Wakes by a woman named Murr Lafferty, and I highly recommend it. We'll probably get her on the show at some point. I have to um, check it out. What's it about? I'm not far enough in to like really know, but it's something to do with clones and uh, a murder investigation and you know all that fun stuff. Sign me up. Have you watched uh, Altered Carbon on Netflix yet? I knew that's what you were going to ask. Uh, I have seen a couple episodes, but I really need to dig in. I, I just finished The Americans, which I won't say a word because I'm sure a lot of people are watching, but whew, that, that show... I've tried to watch that show before and it just gives me so much anxiety per episode that it's hard to keep up with. I really didn't think I was going to like it. I'm in the same boat, but I I knocked through all six seasons in like probably two months. It's not like Breaking Bad good, but it's close. I will have to give it another shot. All right. To the issue at hand. Who do we have on the show this week? Jeff Perlman. What's he here to talk to us about today? So Jeff Perlman is one of those guys that, you know, I've always been aware of, you know, most of my life. Uh, He is a sports writer, which I actually like somehow shockingly don't think we've had on the show previously. I've been thinking about this a lot because, you know, when you're thinking of a writer, you don't often think about sports writers. And I wonder, I like, I honestly, I don't have a reason why, but like, it's never the first thing that comes into mind. I think for me in particular, I don't read or watch sports uh, that often really at all. So it's it's sort of a blind spot for me. Yeah, but I mean, when you think about it, like sports writers are probably some of the most read people on the planet. For sure. And I think what's uh, what's interesting about Jeff is that he doesn't consider himself a sports writer because of the way that he writes about sports and the people who play them. You know, he his background includes writing for, uh, you know, a lot of newspapers, 
you know, he started at the Tennessean, talks about uh, how he went from there to Sports Illustrated, how that kind of changed his writing style and, uh, you know, how his career progressed. Uh, And now he does a little bit of everything. Uh, He has a podcast. It's one of several that he started over the last few years. He has, I think, eight books. Uh, We didn't really dig into it, but he does have uh, a whole whole book about the usfl that's coming out soon it's called football for a buck uh and if you enjoy what he has to say which i'm sure you will give it a shot uh it's available wherever books are sold um and he's writing now for this website called the athletic which if you're not familiar is uh, a subscription only sports publication that just collected like some of the most talented writers all over the country and put them all in one place uh, you pay a subscription fee for it every month and you are just delivered like really really high quality journalism but i mean if you google his name you can find a ton of stuff that he's written because he's been around the block so let's get to it welcome to the show jeff do you want to tell our listeners uh who you are and what you do uh, yeah, my name is Jeff Perlman, and I'm a, uh, I mean, I'm a long-time sports writer, but I mainly write books, and um, so I mainly write books, and I have, uh, I have my, uh, my eighth coming out in September, a book about the old United States Football League, and uh, otherwise I sit around and, you know, just write and pet my dog. <laughs> that sounds like a beautiful life. You, you once, I, I actually don't know if I'm making this up or not, but I believe that you once told me that you don't like writing about sports. It's not that I don't like writing about sports. It's I'm not passionate about sports. Like it's not, um, people will be like, people will say to me, I get a lot of like, hey, can you come on my radio show tomorrow? And I'll be like, well, what's the topic? And they'll say, ah, oh, you know, the, the Denver Nuggets and the trade deadline. And I'm always like, I'm the wrong guy. And I always feel like a jerk because I don't want people to think I'm a jerk. But I just, I don't know it. Like I don't care anymore. I, I find LeBron going to the Lakers interesting in part because I live here. And in part because I wrote a book about the Lakers, but the day-to-day minutia of sports doesn't interest me. But I don't, I don't really view the books I, I write. I don't. This is going to sound pretentious, but I don't mean it that way. Like I don't, I don't view them as quote-unquote sports books. Like the the prism is sports, but you're really writing about the people involved, and people are interesting whether they're athletes or sitting at the end of the bar. That's so interesting because the, I mean, some of the outlets that you write for, it's like MLB.com, Sports and that one I might be making up, you but Sports Illustrated. Up. But I'll tell you, okay. they want to pay me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sports Illustrated, The Athletic, uh, you wrote for like the sports columns of a bunch of like independent mm-hmm. or not uh, smaller local newspapers and everything over the years. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like what, maybe your, your opinion has just changed over the years, but I mean, you're still writing for sports outlets. Yeah. But I, so, all right. So the thing is this, number one. You become known for something, and it's very hard. I don't think at this point in my career, the Washington Post is calling and saying, we want you to cover politics, and I don't think I could do it anymore anyway. Um, you become known as a for a certain genre, and, and I'm comfortable with that because, you know, I mean, just as an example, I've been writing for The Athletic. I write a weekly column for The Athletic, and it, it's really a joy. And like last week, they let me write almost about any topic. And last week's column was about, in 1919, a Yankee outfielder named Ping Bodhi had a spaghetti-eating contest against an ostrich. And I decided to write a column about that <laughs> because I just thought that's crazy. There's no anniversary. Ping Bodhi's been dead for a gazillion years. The ostrich just died that night. But I just thought, what a fascinating... <laughs> I guess you shouldn't feed li- spaghetti. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Don't, don't feed spaghetti to, to ostriches. But, um, 
it allowed, you know, sports has allowed <laughs> me to write about a million different things. You know, like I'm not trying to sell books here. Like the USFL book, the reason it appealed to me and was fun is because it's really nostalgia. And for me being a kid and loving this league when I was 12 years old. So a lot of what does it for me about sports and about writing about sports, what a lot of my fuel is nostalgia and little things that you loved as a kid that now as an adult, you can dig into and find out what, what happened behind it all. So that's really cool for me. But do I care about, can I name the lineup for the Mets? I'm a, I grew up a Mets fan. I couldn't tell you 80% of the roster right now. But you gravitate towards sports personalities. No, I gravitate toward sports is going to pay my bills. Like that's okay. the reality. Sports is going to pay my bills. And I love personalities, period. Like I, I'll, I'd be happy, thrilled to write about the barbershop where my kid goes, or I take my son and they're all these guys tatted up and blah, blah, blah. But no one's going to, no one's going to pay me to write that, that book or that article. So if it means diving into sports personalities and finding out who these guys are, I mean, that's fun. That's great too. Everyone has a story. The thing about, thing about journalism that anyone who's done this for a long time will tell you, everybody has a story. Everyone has a story. And it doesn't matter if they're an athlete or the guy picking up, you know, dropping off your mail every day. Everyone has a story. So it doesn't really matter to me what venue I'm telling you. I just, I kind of like just telling the stories. That sounds yeah. bullshit. That's 100% true. I just like telling the stories. No, no, I get it. I, I just finished reading your piece on, uh, I'm going to butcher his name, but the guy that uh, put Percy the joke. Percy no, no, the, the guy who wrote the, he wrote the joke into the uh, Gannettville newspaper. Um, oh, 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 you mean uh, the Dixon sucks not, donkey dick article? Yes. Is that what oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that one, and you're right. Everybody has a story. Like I, I have a story of something extremely similar that happened to me. Uh, I had a paper. Oh, I? Yeah. Like, no, go ahead. I want to hear yours. What is yours? Well, I, I, I wrote, I have a twin brother and I wrote an essay my senior year of high school, left it on the computer. He wrote a very similar line. Uh, not, not quite equal, but it was about what was the line. Uh, <laughs> I I don't want to say it, but it wasn't good. Um, I turned it in. I uh, didn't even realize it was there. And then I actually got in trouble because I didn't proofread the piece. Right. Um, but which is a total mess. And like you can debate the ethics of that. And your piece actually touched on some of them. But, um, but yeah, I mean, everybody has a story very similar to that. And like you could just as be just as easily have told my story. Uh, right. As you could have, you know, with this Nate guy who wrote um about sports for the paper yeah i mean i um that story was really uh sort of close to my heart number one because i, I started my career in tennessee and uh that happened in tennessee too and, and it happened right after i left to go to sports illustrated and number two because i left behind in nashville so my career was at the tennessee and i started there and i left behind a trail of some of the biggest screw-ups in the history of media i mean <laughs> one of, i'm not exaggerating i have some of the worst i mean I've told them. Let's, them. let's hear them. them. You want to? I'll give you. I can give you a million of them. I can give you. I mean, among other things, I um. Right, here's my worst one. This is my most embarrassing moment, maybe of my career, and I've had a lot of embarrassing moments. Um, I was in the features section. That was my first job. I was in, in the feature section, of Nashville, Tennessee, which is like a, you know, you write light fluff pieces about food and culture and blah blah blah. And I, I was 22 years old. I started there, 1994. I was 22, and there was a woman who sat next to me named Sheila Jones. Sheila was one of my favorite people in the world. She was the sort of section receptionist or office manager. Uh, she was probably 33, about five feet tall, African-American, just a freaking delight from Nashville. And I loved her. She treated me almost like a son slash 
you know, little brother. And we used to talk trash to each other all the time. We talked <laughs> about this and that, and it was great. And all right, so one night I'm there late at, at work and I file my story and I see Sheila has left her computer on. And we used to have this inner office messaging system. And I go onto her computer and I type in a message to herself. And I, it was something like, hey, fuck off, right? And I write the message. <laughs> I'm home the next day. I get a call. Uh, Jeff, you need to come into the office. Everyone's coming in. And I'm like, what's, what's going on? They're like, well, Sheila has had this stalker. And last night, the stalker went on her computer and wrote a really threatening message to her. So we're trying to figure out what happened and blah, 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 blah. And I'm sitting there like, oh, my God. Holy wow. shit. So I go in and everyone is like freaking out. Everyone is like literally freaking out about what happened to Sheila Jones and who's who, the stalker. How did he get in the building? Blah, blah, blah. And I pull Sheila aside. I'm like, Sheila, I got to tell you, I, um, I did it. I, I, I did that. And she's like, Jeff, I'm just happy that you're telling me and that I don't have to worry. And I was like, do we have to tell our boss? And she's like, yeah, <laughs> we do. And I'm like, I knew we had to. And I, um, her name was Catherine Mayu. She's one of my favorite people in the world. And um, I go in and I'm like, Catherine, can I talk to you? And I'm like, I was the one. I wrote it. I was just kidding. And I start crying. I mean, I start crying. I was 22 years old. I'm crying. And she just chewed me out, rightly so. Um, and it was mortifying. I mean, it was mortifying. And there were a million stories like that from my time in Nashua. I lost a $2,000 police scanner, never found it. I crossed the police line. <laughs> I crossed the police line at a crime scene. I was punished and put on cops. And I, I covered a murder scene. And I was the only one there. And um, there was police tape up on the, on the door. And I, I felt the knob and the door was, was open. And I called the office on like a shoe-sized phone. And I, my editor's name was Dwight Lewis. And I asked for Dwight to see if it's okay if I open the door just to write what it looked like. And he wasn't there. And someone said, Dwight will call you back in a few minutes. Don't do anything. And I'm sitting there with the devil on my shoulder and I open the door and I see like blood all over the couch, bullet holes in the wall and the phone rings. I close the door like two seconds later, phone rings. It's Dwight. Jeff, whatever you do, do not open the door. Don't open the door. And I'm like, uh, I just opened the door. Jeff, what the fuck? You know, blah, blah, blah. Okay. just like one story after another. <laughs> and you learn from them, but it was, it took me a long time to learn. I was just a very slow yeah. learner. Anyway. Well, you, you say, you say all the time that you learn from like the best thing that happened to you is getting older when it came to your writing career. You know, you learn from all the mistakes that you made. And even if like you had gone back to talk to yourself as a kid, like you, you're, the kid version of you would have just said, piss off. I don't want to listen. Yeah. So yeah. what, one thing I do want to uh, ask you about, like in looking back at, at your experience, like writing these feature pieces and just like all of the profiles that you write, like how do you insert your own voice into these stories? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, over, um, I do feel like that's something you learn as you get older, as a writer. Um, the first place I really learned how to write sort of with a, a voice, whatever that means even, is at Sports Illustrated because um, the writers, it was a huge leap for me going from the Tennessee into SI as far as the quality of writing. That was a time, SI was just this who's who of sports writing and it was a murderer's row it really was a great writers who all were very distinctive in their styles and i think the number one thing the number one uh the number one way i learned is just by reading great writing that sounds overly simplistic but if you read it and you don't just read it uh you know like you read a profile of Derek jeter 
you know, 99 out of 100 are reading the profile to see what they can learn about Derek Jeter. And I would be reading the stories to see what I could learn about writing about Derek Jeter. That's the truth. So transitions, word choice, uh, phrasing, um, pacing. Um, I try to, I've heard a lot like, and for good and for bad, I think, like I write like I talk. And I talk very sort of New York fast and with a lot of stop and go. And I kind of write that way too. A lot of stop and go, a lot of short sentences, a lot of words, single paragraphs with, you know, single word paragraphs. And I just think over time from reading, paying attention to how people write, uh, and also kind of paying attention to your own voice, you, you develop a little of it. I don't know. You know, I mean, some people say they recognize my writing when they read it. Other people don't. I guess it just depends. No, no, it's 100% true. I mean, it's it's a little bit of the Malcolm Gladwell, you know, 10,000 hours. Uh, do you do you think that any of that is like innate ability or do you think it's all just kind of like learned experience? Oh, man, that's a good question. I think um, I used to think it was innate. When I was a young asshole, I thought it was innate and I thought I had a gift. And as I've gotten older, I realized that that's nonsense. Like, I love to read. I love to read. My dad was a really good writer. My dad self-published a business book. I still consider the first chapter one of the best best three pages anyone can write anywhere. Um, I grew up sitting at the table reading the New York Times sports section. So I'd be reading all these great writers. When I was in college, I would go through the archives of our college paper, University of Delaware. And anyone who had made it big, I would read their clips from back when they were at Delaware. I just think like I really paid attention to writing. Um, so I don't think, do I think I was born with some, I don't think it's like an athlete where, you know, Mike Trout was born with some physical gifts that other people don't have. I just think I, I was brought up with a really love of reading and a love of writing. Plus I, could, I couldn't hit for shit. So it wasn't like I was <laughs> going to be playing, I wasn't going to be playing for the Mets. So I had to find a different avenue into sports. Yeah. And, and how much of like this change happened, like when you went from the Tennessee into Sports Illustrated, you know, you're going from, I, I assume you were writing for print at that point. Mm-hmm. So like what happened when you went from daily to weekly? Oh, well, it's funny. My first job, true story. My first job, I was hired at Sports Illustrated and I was hired as a, uh, the position was called a reporter and basically you're a fact checker. So, and it was a, it was a beast of a job. Like you would sit there. And they would send in, so let's say Rick Riley files a story. You have to go through it word by word with a pen, crossing out every word, circling every fact. So if he was writing a story about Gary Sheffield, you would circle the name Gary Sheffield, check that it's spelled right. Batting average, circle it, check it's spelled right. That's what I would do. But on my off days, I would come in and I would, um, I would I, there used to be this book called The Co-Sided Directory, which was a, uh, it was a directory of every sports information director from every college in the country. And on my off days, when, when very few people were in the office, I would go in and I would call one by one by one, alphabetical order. So Abilene Christian and then, you know, whatever, Arcadia College, whatever. And I would say, my name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a reporter at Sports Illustrated. I'm trying to work my way up. Um, I'm looking for story ideas. I'm looking to pitch story ideas. If you guys have any good story ideas, and I would sit there in my off days, you know, whatever, five, six hour chunks. And the thing is, I would never, they'd be like, oh, we have this guy. He's going to be a thousand yard rusher. And I'd always say, that's not what I'm looking for. I don't need the fact, nobody cares. Nobody at Sports Illustrated is going to care about the thousand yard rusher at the University of Rhode Island in and of himself. Yeah, I need they the all want thousand- to, They all want to hear about the 17 year old sweeper who sucks donkey dick. Yeah, well, or the, <laughs> yeah, yes, actually. Or the, or the five foot two thousand yard rusher or the one arm gymnast or the twins from, you know, wherever, South Africa. So before long, I was showing up at meetings with all these ideas of weird, funky, quirky, college stories. And 
that really, I mean, that taught me a ton. That taught me a ton about finding story ideas, cultivating sources, just digging, busting your ass for something. And, you know, I got, I got promoted fairly quickly, largely on the strength of, of that. So I was not the transition from the Tennessean where I was writing regular features to SI was a real different sort of jump because I went from writing regularly to barely writing at all. Yeah, I actually, one of the questions I had here, and I'm glad that you brought that up organically, was just like, how do you find your stories? Because I imagine you're not still doing that today. I mean, I'm, so I, uh, I write a weekly column for The Athletic, and I'm always glancing around for stuff, you know, and like, you know, I read a ton. Twitter actually is great for finding ideas, like great for finding ideas. I bet. Um, yeah, it's really good. And with book ideas, I'll, I'll be, I would just walk the bookstores. I'll walk the shelves, read, you know, go through Amazon, look around what, you know, what people are writing about, find ideas, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm always looking. I'm not using the Cosida directory anymore, but I am always looking to see what's out there. I just gave my dog a piece of fish. Is that bad for dogs? What kind of fish? Uh, I don't I think say, so. What kind of dog? Salmon. <laughs> my dog's a cockapoo. She's literally, you will hear her bark at some point because she's pissed at That's fine. As long as it's a cockapoo. I like cockapoo. And uh, I know onions, avocados, and chocolate are bad, but I don't think fish is. Okay, just yeah, I think fish is good. It, was I it cooked? It was cooked, yes. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, you, you have these stories that you're writing like each week and, yeah, I mean, more often that, than that at this point, actually. Like, how do you determine which ones are like, you know, good for books as opposed to maybe a 10,000 word piece for The Athletic? Uh, and after this, I want to jump into like business model, which might influence your answer for this. Mm-hmm. So um, for me, for books, there's like a uh, the US of L is the first book I've written right in. I always have this criteria, these these three sort of prongs for book ideas. Number one, uh, it has to be something that will interest me for two years because you're going to di- you're going to dive into it for two years. And I wrote a book. One of my books was a biography of Roger Clemens. And I hated 80 percent of that experience because I just didn't he wasn't that interesting. And I kind of sold out and did that one for the money. Um, and that was a mistake. The book didn't sell well. The book was mediocre. I tried my best, but it just didn't work out. You have, to, you have to love what you're writing about or at least be really interested in what you're writing about. Um, number two is it, it, it couldn't have been done before, at least in well. You know, there are always going to be quickie books on athletes, but it couldn't be done well. Like Walter Payton, had, I wrote a book about Walter Payton. He did an autobiography that was good. Um, but it turns out that it was kind of nonsense. Like once I started digging into Walter Payton, it turns out the book just wasn't, it was kind of fictional. And then, uh, third is it has to have a shot of selling. Yeah. It has to have a shot. If you look at the, the books I've written about, I've never done, I've not, I haven't done a boys on the boat, which obviously sold used, but like, I haven't written the book where you're taking a real risk that is not going to sell. You know, like every subject I wrote about, even my two worst sellers are Clemens and Bonds. But both those subjects were big sub, uh, subjects that had a shot, you know. Mm-hmm. U.S. of L is my first book, actually, where I kind of abandoned that a little bit. And I'm going to need a lot to go write uh, for it to sell. What do you think about, like, the timeliness of these kind of profile pieces? You know, I, I doubt that there's anybody out there that's writing, like, a good biography of LeBron James today. But I, I bet you can point me to, like, 20 different, like, feature-length magazine or TV spots that, like, really have covered him exhaustively. See, I, uh, someone said to me... Uh, Someone said to me recently, you should do a book about LeBron and something and something. I actually think a book about LeBron, I, I think there are LeBron books that could be good. Um, the thing about books nowadays is it, it, the, the readership of books skews a little older than it used to. 
Um, and that's where I think nostalgia really works with books. Um, yeah. You know, again, USFL, good or bad, it happened in the 80s. A lot of those people who were fans of the USFL are now in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s. Those are book buyers. Um, Clemens, Bonds, Brett Favre. You know, those. I, I think a LeBron book, um, it's a little harder. It's just a little harder. But I, I, he might be the rare guy who can, who can sort of break the mold on that. I just think generally you have to really think about who the audiences are, who's buying books. Um, if you did a Cardi B book right now, just as an example, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, right. it, number one, she almost certainly wouldn't read it. But number two, I think it would be a disaster. Like, I don't think, I don't think it would do well. It might do well in like some, if she did a bunch of signings for it, if Cardi B quote unquote wrote the book and showed up everywhere doing signings, it would sell well. But our, our millennials you know, and, and younger running out to buy a Cardi B book? I don't think so. I just don't think so. I, I know a couple who would. Yeah, I do too. But not that I, I know a couple who would, yeah. I mean, you're, you're seeing all of these books being written by like Instagram and YouTube celebrities nowadays that, you know, like some of them are, are fine. They're like the, the current day versions of coffee table books. But I mean, these aren't things that somebody's going to be pointing to like six months from now, let alone, you know, 10 years. So I don't know. I just think it's interesting because, I mean, like we live in a world where, you know, 20, 30 years ago, a book might have been the best way to absorb a lot of information about LeBron mm -hmm. uh, just because you didn't really have access to it. But now you can, you know, read probably 20 pieces at ESPN or Sports Illustrated. And I, I don't know. It's just something that's always fascinated me because there's it's a whole new system, but it also is like, you know, something that we've been living with for, you know, hundreds of years that I just don't, I'm just not aware of because I, I just turned 30. So like, I'm just getting to that point where I'm thinking like more in the, the longevity side of things. Anyway. The thing uh, is, well, I would say this, I don't, um, I, I mean, it's really interesting. Like if you were going to do a LeBron book, you would have to find out a lot of things like a book has to, it has to expand on what people know already. Like that's important. The problem is, we know everything about these people nowadays. We know everything. We are there with our cameras. Um, we are there with our websites. We're there with our blogs. We're there with our podcasts. With everything. And it is much harder to find new information about people um, than it used to be. You know, like I can, write, I can tell you about Brett Favre and tell you things you did not know because Brett Favre wasn't being covered 24-7 um, by every outlet, including just you basic humanity. It's just a different game. So it is a lot harder to sort of give information now that people did not know. Um, much harder, I think. Yeah, especially because the, the barrier that you're trying to crack in today's celebrities is a self-imposed one on their part because they could, basically what they're holding back and what you'd be trying to find out in a book is exactly what they've decided to not put out. Well, that's often the case. I mean, um, yeah, that, you've probably been dealing with that forever. I have actually. I mean, like just as an example, like uh, the Walter Payton book. You know, Walter Payton had an out of wedlock kid who he didn't he took care of financially, but had nothing to do with. I mean, that was not information the Payton family wanted out there. It was information I thought was important enough because you're writing a definitive biography of someone's life. So you're always one of the things in this job. You're always and part of the part of the jobs, part of the part of the tasks is. Um, trying to find it's the you know trying to find the information that they don't want you to find out that doesn't mean you're yeah. being kitty kelly and you're, and you're being sleazy but it's if you're writing a full profile of someone that's part of it finding things that people calling a million people and mm -hmm. hoping that the millionth person you call is the one who's going to say oh i'll tell you about whatever 
I mean, that's a big part of it. Yeah, it's like the Harry Potter journalist. What is it, Rita Skeeter? You're, I have no idea. Kyle, Kyle I, I'm waiting for you on this one, Kyle. What's her name? I'm just gonna let you hang. Yeah, it's Rita Skeeter. Um, okay, she, she's uh, she's like a shoe, like a gumshoe reporter in Harry Potter that just reports on all the people that don't want their story out. I did um, have my first. Um, what the hell was it called? The beer in Harry Potter. Uh, the butter butter beer. beer. Yeah, we went to Universal, which, by the way, is such an overpriced joke. And uh, <laughs> even my kids are like, "Really? This is it?" And uh, I had my first butter beer, and probably my Ugh. last butter beer. Yeah, it was not good. Yeah, it was gross. Uh, nothing like the books, but I would say uh, Rita Skeeter is a tabloid journalist. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. What I would be interested in is it sounds like the method of writing books about celebrities and uh, athletes who are famous has always been to collect information they didn't necessarily want you to collect. But has your method of collection changed or is it still just calling a thousand people until you find that one? Um, it's it's yeah, it's calling. I mean, I'll call. I sit at the phone and I just freaking call and call and call and call and call. And I um, I will. um. I mean, a big part of my research is like I, uh, all right, just an example, I'm working on a book now. It's an NBA related book. And I went to uh, Staples because one thing I do that's old fashioned is I print everything out. And I went to Staples yesterday to print out my notes. There was 11,000 pages of notes, right? Jesus. Which is kind of crazy. Even the guy's like, whoa, really? And, uh, and um, I'll go through that, you know, with a, with a comb and I will circle every name I find. So it could be the ball boy for whatever team I'm writing about. It could be, some cheerleader who was pissed off at so-and-so. It could be the owner's boyfriend at the time, whatever. It's about finding everyone and calling them and just calling and calling and calling. Because most of my dad always used to say, it's true. The number one thing people like to talk about is themselves. And it's the same with this. You know, people are generally flattered when you call and want to seek their opinion. So it's just a matter of calling and calling and calling and calling. And now, you, now your Rolodex is ridiculous. Uh, wait, did you say my Rolodex? Yeah, your, your contact list on your phone oh my is God. ridiculous. Thing. I have... I feel like I said, this is my one thing. I have the best, I would say I have the best quote unquote Rolodex of weird, obscure, like, I, this is an example. I'm literally looking at my phone right now, okay? I have, among others, this is top of my, I swear to God, former Cincinnati Bengal, Achilles Smith, who I think was the number two <laughs> or three pick in the back, Al Michaels, um, Alvin Gentry, coach of, uh, is he still a coach in the NBA? I don't know. Um, Andre Risen, you know, like the GM of the Washington Mystics. You know, Antonio <laughs> Daniels, a former NBA player. Like, it is a weird – Ralph Macchio, it is the weirdest. The best yeah, thing I ever yeah, did – there you go. The best trade I ever made – this is a true story. A friend of mine, I won't say who, in the business, every now and then we'll trade, you'll trade a number. And I traded Jerry West for Sir Mix-a-Lot. <laughs> That's great. Just because? Just because. I, no I, I have a friend who's the, the biggest sports journalist that never came to be. This kid knows, like, he. you ask him on the spot right now, like the Cleveland Indians 96 starting lineup, he could tell you. Uh, and he 
is he knows everybody and he has like a bunch of very random numbers in his phone uh i should not be saying this on air but he uh sent a bunch of texts to a current nba player who uh was on a championship team a couple years ago and one of his texts pretending to be another player and oh one of his text messages uh made it into a national publication oh boy um <laughs> So I don't think that one is ever spilled, but, but, uh, I, I mean, butt it's dialed, a, I butt dialed former Met Benny Agbayani about 8,000 times. And I'm always, yeah. always embarrassed Does he, for it. I don't know. Do you talk to him now? He once, he once texted me. He's like, he doesn't know who I am. And he once texted yeah. me and he's like, who, who dis? That's what he wrote. Who dis? And I wrote, I wrote back this me. And that was it. That was our last, that was our last interaction. Me and Benny you guys are, are pen, meant to be. It's pen pals. Yeah, we are. So, Business models. You you went from like an ad and subscription supported model at the Tennessean to you know yeah Sports Illustrated and everywhere else over the last few years, and now you're back to a subscription model at the Athletic. Mm-hmm. Is that like did you just know that this was always going to be the case, or you know when? No. when <laughs> no. I, I mean that that's my big question because you you in particular talk often about you know how things used to be. Uh-huh. And I, I don't hear that. I heard that a lot a couple of years back, and now I don't so much anymore. Yeah, I uh, I don't know if this works or not. I have no idea. I truly have no idea. If you talk to people at the Athletic, they're very optimistic. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they have to I think be. They have to be, of course. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's amazing the number of people. I had a, uh, a former NFL general manager. I interviewed him for a piece I wrote for the Athletic. And at the end, he's like, I was like, well, you know, it's on the athletic. He goes, I'm not paying for that. And I was like, oh, why? And he's like, why should I pay for it? And I felt like saying, asshole, you should pay for it because I work my ass off and they need to pay. You know, like you pay yeah. for your newspaper, right? It just like, it really made me angry. Um, but there is, you know, newspapers and magazines really screwed up by giving away everything for free. I don't yeah. know what. We, we've all been no conditioned. Idea. Yeah. So we've all been conditioned. That's supposed to be free. And I kind of like what the athletic is doing, though. I mean, they they basically hired this like who's who in sports journalism, and they're saying if you want the best stuff, if you really love sports and you want the best stuff, and you care truly care about what's happening with this team and that team and that team and this team, well, here you go. It's pretty cheap, but you have to pay for it. Um, and I I feel like we need it to work. I don't think just I don't just want it to work. I feel like we need it to work. I think if the athletic folded tomorrow, you would have an avalanche of unemployed sports journalists, good sports journalists. And I don't really see how the industry would recover from the number of people who suddenly be out of work. So that's, I mean, this is something that I've always found interesting about the conflict of new media and the internet. It's like, if you, if you take a place like the athletic where you guys probably need subscriptions from all over the country, you have to service so many different teams and so many different fans in order to stay profitable and stay alive if you go with a subscription based model how do you how do you divide and conquer how do you build something that survives the test of 25 or 32 major regions and five different leagues like how do you how do you build for that when you have to keep a small scale in order to manage a subscription based service well i mean I'm probably the wrong guy to ask in a lot of ways. What they've, what they've done is they started, I mean, they started by basically hiring a bunch of big names to handle their individual sports sites. So they got Ken Rosenthal to do baseball. They got Seth Davis, college basketball, Stuart Mandel. 
And then they really expanded into the individual markets. They started a athletic New York and athletic Los Angeles, and they hired the best writers they could get in all those regions. Um, and again, I think the idea is we're going to hire these people who you're familiar with. So you want, you, you live in LA, you want to get the LA, you want to get the Lakers stuff? Well, we're going to get Bill Orham who covered the Lakers for the Orange County Register. Now he's going to be only, the only place you can read him now is right here in the athletic. And if you like the Rams, we're going to hire this writer. And this is where you're going to get them right here. Mm-hmm. And I think their hope is that number one, people are going to be loyal to the writers they've read for a long time. Uh, and number two, that their coverage is going to be so much better than anyone else that sports fans feel compelled. I mean, the, the weirdest thing for me about it has been you tweet stuff out, but people can't read what you wrote. You tweet a link to it and they can see the lead, but they can't read the whole story. And that's unusual. That's a different sort of thing that I am not used to. It's so interesting because there's so many different, like, there are a lot of, a, a lot of people in the journalism industry has done that, like outside of sports already. Uh, but then you have a lot of people that are taking the exact opposite approach and just looking for scale. Uh, like Barstool is a very similar model. Uh, although they started like, you know, market specific and then like turned national at a certain point. So I don't know. I, I, I totally agree with you. And I, you know, I think that we're seeing quite often with like crowdfunding models and Kickstarter and, you know, all that stuff that people are willing to pay. It's just a matter of, you know, discoverability and like really maintaining the quality that, you know, they're, that they will expect if they pay. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, it's hard. Look, it's tough. I, um, it's hard to convince people these days again, to pay for product when they've been getting it for free for a long time. That is a, and you can still go to ESPN.com and you can still go to whatever bleacher report or all these sites and you're not paying. Um, but it seems like it's doing pretty well. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm trying to stay optimistic. That's great. Yeah. I hope it keeps on thriving. Yeah. Uh, you keep a personal blog on your website and yep. this is something that's not really striving to like grow like an enormous audience. You just do it yep. cause it seems like you have fun with it. Yes. Correct. So, I mean like why? So, um, I started 10 years ago, which is kind of amazing. And, um, I honestly just wanted a place to vent. That was it. Just a place to vent and put stuff out there and sort of, I mean, I've, it's funny if you go to my, uh, Someone put this on my Wikipedia page once, and I never like, I guess you can delete stuff off. I never did. You know, <laughs> he even blog, he even blog, he blogs about personal stuff like finding blood in his feces, right? <laughs> and I did. I totally did. I did blog about it. Like I got, it just became this place where I just decided I would start sort of venting and writing about things I felt. It was good for me politically to get stuff off my chest. You know, I'm very political, got get stuff off my chest. Um, I also started this Q&A series called the quaz which every week i do a q a with a random person i've been doing it for seven years and that's a really they're, I just, they're good too oh thank you i just really enjoy it i just enjoy it it's just like i love writing i don't i you know like we said or you know early in this like i mainly write about sports but sports are not my you know primary interest in this world so having a blog just allows me to to go off and, and vent and and sometimes if stuff doesn't run like i wrote a story for readers digest years ago about my older brother has Asperger's and I wrote the story and ended up never running. You know, I just put on my website and I got a ton of reads and that I, I felt like every now and then you can just put stuff there that doesn't find a home anywhere else. So it's worked out well for me. That's great. And you have fun with it. So is that the same principle as the podcast? Tell us about two writers slang and Yang. And I think that, uh, you know, if you all enjoy this show, you would really like that one. So definitely give it a listen. Uh, Jeff will tell you a little bit about it.
I just, uh, I like talking writing. I love talking writing. Like I love talking writing. And because um, being a writer is a really isolating thing. It's my biggest problem with the, with the choice of a profession is I'm a social, I'm kind of a social butterfly type person and writing is the opposite of that. So the chance to just shoot the breeze with another writer is really cool for me. And I just figured to do it as a podcast. Um, that's pretty much all it is. Every week I pick a different writer I like and we talk about writing. How long have you been doing it for? I have 58 episodes in and today was the 58th and I do one a week. So a little more than a year. And what, what have you learned from it so far? Man. You know, I've learned more. I, these are all writers who I've, I've mostly known through the years. What, what I really enjoy is hearing the backstories of stories. Um, like today I had uh, Mike Vaccaro from the, from the New York Post. And he wrote just this awesome, awesome uh, column in the Post when Yogi Berra died a bunch of years ago. And he just talked about the backstory and how his dad grew up loving Yogi Berra and how, you know, Yogi Berra was his presence in their family because just of his goodness and his quirkiness and writing about him felt like an ode, not just to Yogi Berra, but to his dad. And I just, I love learning stuff like that and hearing, hearing stuff. I've had a lot of younger writers on. I had a writer last week, Emily Block from the Sun Sentinel. She's only 24. And I was really kind of fascinated to see why someone that young would go into journalism with all the obstacles. And she was just like this enthusiastic, you know, kind of kid. And we met in a diner in Fort Lauderdale and, and it was just cool. I just, I love talking writing. I just love talking writing. I could talk writing all day. Yeah. Same with us. And that's why we made this show. Although we, we made ours, you know, with a less optimistic approach, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, yeah, this show, you know, came across because we had so much trouble writing some of these stories because we were afraid of who it might, you know, offend, uh, saying the wrong thing. Um, is this actually going to like stagnate our writing process? It didn't, at least in yeah. my case, I can't speak for Kyle. But, uh, but yeah, it's been really fun to kind of get a sense of like the other stories that like writers that are much more, you know, popular, famous, uh, better equipped, uh, have, have been able to tell. So you sent us a couple of those stories. Yes. Uh, and I, I really want to like, you know, <laughs> selfishly hear about the John Rocker story because every time I mention you, that's the first thing that comes out of somebody's mouth is, oh, he's the guy that did the John Rocker story. So yeah. could you tell us a little bit about that one? Like literally about what happened with John Rocker? Yeah. I mean, let's hear, if you don't mind, could you tell us kind of like what, what the story is and then like what the backstory is? Sure. Well, I did a story that ran in a sport. It was a final, this is my, this, by the way, I always say is my money story, which is to say, if you're, if you have one story to tell in life, this is probably the story. And I've probably told it a thousand times, but it's always kind of enjoyable anyway. I, uh, it was, uh, it was 1999. I was 27. I was writing for Sports Illustrated. And, um, and there was a pitcher for the Braves named John Rocker. And he was a young kind of hothead, but a good, really good, threw hard, great slider, blah, blah, blah. And SI wanted me to do a profile of him. But it was, um, the Mets were playing the Braves in the playoffs. And I went and I, I interviewed him in little pockets, because during the playoffs, there's so much media around, you don't get that much of a chance. I called his parents, talked to some teammates. It was real quick. And I turned it around real quick, this profile of John Rocker. It was a very positive story. John Rocker, he's not, he's the hero who, he's the, the bad guy who's misunderstood. You know, I was like a young, dumb writer at this point. Like I, I knew what I wanted the story to be. I think I wanted the story to be John Rocker. You don't really understand him. Um, and I hand in the story and the Braves end up beating the Mets 
and then being swept by the Yankees in the World Series. And the story never ran because they got swept so quickly. And that was it. So it's the offseason, and my editor says, why don't you go down to Atlanta and freshen up the John Rocker story? And I called his agent, and I was like, uh, hey, this is Jeff from SI and John Rocker. And my, the agent's like, oh, that's so awesome. He's the best. You're going to love him. John's the best. You're, this is going to be great. And I'm like, great. So I fly down to uh, – it's actually a very funny story. I fly down to Georgia, and Rocker picks me up on the side of a road. I don't even know why, but I was standing outside a mall, like a hooker on the side of the road, and he picks me up in his car. <laughs> And we start driving down the whatever highway. And um, we, we're driving, and, and at one point, there's a car in front of us. It's kind of swerving around. And Rocker goes like, oh, fucking Asian women. They don't fucking know how to drive, blah, blah, blah. And we pass the car, and it's a white guy driving the car. And then we get to the toll booth, you know, which is great. And we get to the toll booth, and he throws in. It was, it was with a change collector at the time. He throws in whatever, a quarter. It doesn't open. Throws in another quarter. It doesn't open. The guy behind him starts honking. He rolls down the window, gives him the middle finger, and yells out, fuck you. And then he spits on the toll booth machine. And somehow, I don't remember what happened. Maybe the guy comes over. We're driving there. We're driving to a school. He's speaking at a school for disadvantaged kids. And we're driving there. And I'm like, hey, so do you like doing this? And he's like, uh, no, but my fucking agent says I should do it, blah, blah, blah. Just like the whole thing is just a joke. And we get to this school, and it's this little podunk school. And Rocker comes out to to speak to the kids and he does a great job and they play this song by Twisted Sister. I want to rock. You guys know that's a little before your time, but there was a song by Twisted Sister. Mm -hmm. I want to rock. And they used to play when he would come out and pitch. So the school plays it and he comes out and he's great. And we're leaving the school and he grabs a CD and steals it on his way out of the school. <laughs> he steals a CD. And then we're out to lunch. Oh, so he hates everybody. We're talking and he hates foreigners and, he does gays and seven train and New York. And the funny thing is, at one point he goes, hey, I'm going to tell you something off the record. And I'm like, wow, this should be good. Off the record. What's it going to be? And he's like, so Bobby Valentine was the Mets manager. He's like, Bobby Valentine, I just think that guy's not a very good manager. Blah, 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 blah. I'm like, you just told me that you hate foreigners on the record. But Bobby Valentine, <laughs> no, that's your big that's your big you know, landmine. So at one point we went, my favorite moment actually, because it was so telling. And nobody ever laughs at this, even though I, I just... We go for lunch, and we're walking in a, in a strip mall. And I'm walking behind him, and he had a pen, and he dropped his pen. And I picked up his pen, and I was like, hey, you dropped this. And he's like, no, I meant to do that. And I remember thinking, I really do, like, what kind of imbecile just drops his pen on the sidewalk? Like, actually thinks in his brain, I'm done with my pen, therefore I'm going to leave it on the sidewalk. Like, I always thought it was such an indictment of character, despite the million other things he was doing. So I ended up <laughs> writing the story... <laughs> and the story comes out and it blows up. Like it blows up. I, this was, it was a pre-Twitter, so it's not viral in a different way. Viral where at the time Rudy Giuliani and Hillary Clinton were running for the Senate in New York and they were asked about it during a debate. Uh, Will Ferrell spoofed John Rocker on Saturday Night Live. Rocker was suspended by baseball. He was sent down. He became this <laughs> national joke. And the crazy part two of it is um, – so it's the following June and the Braves are hosting the Yankees. And I haven't seen John Rocker since the story came out. And my editor says, um, we need someone to go down to Atlanta. And I was like, I'll do it. And I didn't want to do it. Like I had no desire. John Rocker was like six foot four, two, whatever, juiced, crazy. No, he wasn't gonna be happy. But I learned from at a young age when I was at the tennis scene, you always show your face. That's one thing you do as a reporter, you show your face. 
So I went down and I'm in the Yankees clubhouse an inordinate amount of time. And I know I have to go to the Braves clubhouse at some point. And you kind of like, even though you, you, your journalistic credo is like, I need to show my face. You're kind of hoping you show your face and then you can say you showed your face, but yeah, yeah, I didn't run into him, but that happens. So I'm walking down the hallway from the Yankee clubhouse to the Braves. My head is down. I'm really nervous. I'm still young in this business. And I hear, you don't know how long I've been waiting for this. And I look up. <laughs> My hands are sweating telling this story. I swear to God. I would look up and it's John Rocker. And he comes up to me. And he's wearing street clothes. And he puts his, a hat he's wearing on backwards. And he gets in my face. And he starts jabbing me in the chest. You don't know. Do you have any idea how fucking what you did to fucking me? Do you have any idea what I can do to you? Blah, 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 blah. And the only good moment I had, he's like, I drove you around Atlanta. I introduced you to my family. I bought you lunch. Blah. And I go, well, I paid for lunch. Fuck you. That doesn't matter. Blah, 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 blah. You know, like, <laughs> now I always pay for lunch. The lesson I always say is always pay for lunch. And um, it was freaking terrifying, man. And the worst part of it was I was asked. So a bunch of media saw it. And afterwards, I was interviewed in the, in the, in the uh, press box afterwards. And someone asked if I was scared. And I wrote, um, I wrote, yeah, I was scared. Oh, no, it runs in the newspaper. Quote, Jeff Perot, and I was scared. For the next like five or six Thanksgivings, <laughs> my brother at some point during dinner would go, I was scared. Like that. I never lived down the I was scared quote from John Rocker. Anyway, that's my John Rocker story. So I had no idea that you had already pre-written this thing ahead of him giving you all of those ridiculous quotes. And I know, readers- and I wish I had it. Because for years yeah. he was like, this guy was the guy with an agenda. And I was like, man, I wrote a story about you that made you look good, you fucking idiot. Anyway. Yeah. Have you done any stories since then uh, that you know, you would compare to the John Rocker story? Man. More like um, I've had people upset over over books. I mean, I know Clemens did not like the biography I wrote in, but nothing, nothing like that. Nothing. I wrote a story not that long after David Wells was a pitcher with the Toronto Blue Jays, and I wrote this lead about how fat he was because he was known as like this, but it was like, it was actually, yeah, he was meant, a big guy. He was a big guy, but it was meant in my head. It was a terribly executed lead, but it was meant as praise. And, um, but it came off really snarky and mean and he was pissed. And he actually said, this guy did me just like he did rocker. Um, and that was really awkward and he was right to be <laughs> mad. That was just me being young and dumb and not having control of the language. Um, but I've never had anything like that. Well, do you run into nowadays, and maybe you're like senior enough that this doesn't happen, but the I've I've only written probably 15 stories that have been published, but on almost every single one of them without fail, my editor will rewrite my headline. And oftentimes it's like for clickbait and I, I really hate it. Have you ever had a situation like that? I haven't. The famous one that I is um, before I got to Sports Illustrated by a year or so, there was that story on Michael Jordan and playing baseball. Steve Wolf wrote the story. He had nothing to do with the headline. And they put on the cover, Bag It, Michael. And it was about like how Michael Jordan is an embarrassment to baseball. And Oof. that was the last time Michael Jordan talked to Sports Illustrated. Um, and the writer got blamed. And he was like, I had nothing to do with that. I didn't even write the headline. Um, but I've never, had, I've never had anything. I've had headlines I haven't liked. I've had book, book titles, names of books I don't like. Um, but nothing that's really cost me anything. That that story is something that everybody should read just because it's, I mean, 
Yeah, I don't even know why, but it's it's just entertaining. It's it's yeah. a good one. <laughs> what? Not for me when it happened, but later yeah. on, you can look back at things. You always you know you learn from all this stuff, and it was a it was a weird experience. I told that story a million times. It's still it's funny to look back. He, had, you know, what's funny is a, a friend of mine ran into John Rocker at a bar like four days ago, and he texted me and he's like, "I'm in a bar with John Rocker," and I wrote back. I said, "Tell him we're friends." And he's like, "Okay," <laughs> and then he tweeted. Just told John Rocker I'm friends with Jeff Perlman. That did not go well. <laughs> <laughs> did he tell you what happened? Yeah, he said Rocker was like livid and like, you know, fuck that guy, blah, 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 blah. Uh, the funny thing is I always thought, I always had this thing, because I always like making peace with people. I always yeah. had this vision that we'd be doing some 30 for 30 years later and it'd be like the writer and the baseball player and they meet up and they talk and never going to happen. Zero percent chance. You should you should uh, get him for the quaz. Yeah, I had... um. I don't think that's going to happen. I had um, <laughs> go get him. I had Will Clark, who used to be a San Francisco Giant, really good player. He lit into me in a clubhouse after the John Rocker thing. So I have had, I have had guys go off on me. It does happen, but not to that degree. And how do you deal with that? Are, are they just like not your sources from that point on? Not, yeah. I mean, I've a lot of times people just like to blow up, and once they once they do, they're over it. And it's like you know what, man, I appreciate you, blah 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 blah, like that. That does happen. That's a very common story in sports where a guy goes off and he's really mad. And he's never going to talk to you. But then he sees you a few days later. I had a guy, a pitcher named Sean Estes. He pitched for the Giants. And he called me at home. And he was really upset about something I wrote. And the next time I saw him, it was like, hey, how's it going? How's it going? Blah, blah, blah. Shit happens. Like people, people do understand. One thing that changes as you get older, like you're not afraid anymore. Like I used to be afraid. Like I was afraid of John Rocker. In that situation now, 2018, myself at 46, I'm not afraid of John Rocker. I'm aware if he punches me, I'm a rich person. You know, like, there's no, <laughs> I'm not timid anymore about it. I'm just not. I, you lose that over time. And that's a beautiful thing, actually. That's great. What do you think that buys you? What, experience? Yeah. I mean, How does it change what you do? I think it makes you a better writer. I really do. I think a lot of things. I think being a parent has made me a million times better writer. Um. I always say like, there's certain writers, I won't name names, I could, but I won't like, and I always think in my head, they write like they don't have kids. And what I mean is like, I am acutely aware right now that if I write a column for The Athletic and I'm not happy with the edits, it's gone in three days or two days or whatever. Like it's not, it doesn't matter that much. Even like, you know, like book covers where I have not loved the covers, just as an example, like you bust your ass on a book for two years, they show you the cover, you argue against it. They say, no, we're using this cover. Like that stuff used to kill me, but I realized like at the end of the day, it's just not that important. It's not that important. You know, I, I drove my kid to the doctor today and then we just had dinner and bought like, they're just more important things. And I feel, I feel like when you have that perspective, um, it makes you better. It really does. It, it just, it puts in perspective and it, and it makes you a, a sort of more aware human being, which makes you a better writer, I think. That's great. Yeah, that's uh, I've I've discovered that probably not to the same extent as you, but you know sometimes you have to. It's not quite kill your darlings, but just kind of you know like remember what's important. Well, I just had I had a conversation the other day with someone. So there's a writer. I don't know if you guys know Mike Lupica, who yeah. uh, wrote for the Mike Mike Lupica. Mike Lupica has a history of treating writers like shit. He does. He was at the Daily News. Anyone who he considered a threat, anyone who was kind of could get some of his spotlight, he would treat them like shit. And now here we are, it's 2018. 
And Mike Lubick is red. We're talking about Mike Lubick, not because he was a great columnist, which he was. I'm talking to you about him because he treated people like shit. And for what? Like, for what? We're all going to be dead one day. You know, like, you're writing legacy. There have been a million writers. We all come and go. When people are like, some guy said to me today on Facebook, I'm not making this up. He's like, you're a writing legend. I'm like, I am not a writing legend. And there's no such thing. Maybe, you know, there are a couple of writing quote unquote legends here and there. No one's going to remember me in 50 years. No one's going to remember me. And that's totally fine. Like, you take your ride in life. You do your best. You hope you have fun. You raise your kids the best you can. And you try to do it all with integrity. And then you just move on. The one thing you don't want to be known as is an asshole or someone who treated people poorly. Like, that's a, that's the best. I look back at me at 24 and I'm mortified. Like, I'm humiliated that I was such a little asshole and I thought my writing was important and I thought it was great. Like, there are a million better writers than me out there. That's totally fine. It doesn't matter. You just try your best. That's all you can do. Sorry for the lecture. No, I... No, man. That's... It's it's such a good rap. This has been an episode of Writers Who Don't Write, part of the Podglomerate Network. You can check out Writers Who Don't Write and all of the other shows on the Podglomerate Network at thepodglomerate.com. You can find us online at www.podcast. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, wherever you you know consume your media. Uh, all you have to do is Google. We're on all the platforms. If you enjoy the show, tell a friend. Really easy, lightweight way to uh, help get our message across. You know, we've done like almost 70 of these episodes and we want to do another 70. Uh, It always helps to just make sure that um, if you know somebody who would be interested in this kind of stuff, you know, send it their way. Share it on social media, whatever. Uh, We thank you for listening uh, regardless. The music that you heard at the top and the bottom of the hour is from Ryan Dan of Holland Patent Public Library. The music that you heard right in the middle of the show is from Ben Sound of bensound.com. We want to thank Jeff Perlman for coming on the show. You can find more of him online at jeffperlman.com or on Twitter at Jeff Perlman. Uh, pick up a copy of any of his books. Uh, he has a new one coming out in September called Football for a Buck, which is all about the USFL. Just Google his name. You'll find it all. Pretty simple. Uh, and we'll see you in two weeks with another guest. Podglomerate, a sonic universe.